after you have marked hymn number eight as a hymn of encouragement or a hymn of invitation, I'd like to ask you to think with me about a subject of great pressing importance and one of marvelous and powerful and profound idea. Isn't it a wonderful thing for us to pause and ask that question in our life that the psalmist asked in Psalm 116 verse 12, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? That last word is a very personal one. God has benefited me, and he has benefited you personally and individually. Over the next few moments this morning, let us reflect upon that question, thinking about it from the perspective of the Word of God, and see if we can attain a better understanding of all how indeed God has looked upon each of us individually very favorably, and blessed us in marvelous and truly dramatic ways. By way of introduction... As you noticed in the reading a moment ago, we will ultimately arrive at Isaiah 53, but we will build a foundation first before we arrive at that pressing and beautiful text. As we build that foundation, consider the following with me if you would. The very thought that God has benefited and blessed each of us individually challenges us to remember that the central figure in all of history The central character by far is none other than Jesus, the Savior. In fact, through 4,000 years of history, God orchestrated his plan ultimately to bring the Savior into this world. Furthermore, as one recalls that fact, it is also the case that the New Testament builds upon the fact of his coming and powerfully announces he's coming back. The very last chapter of the Bible, virtually the very last verse, says, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Just as certainly as he came once, he will come yet again, and each of us must realize the greatness of what shall transpire when that happens. The beautiful and general resurrection, furthermore, all of eternity that will stand before us. Sure enough, inasmuch as he is the central figure then in all the Bible, Isn't it fair then to say that the world, at least in most instances, does look upon Jesus and exalt him at least to some degree? Think about the myriad of individuals who have assembled today and around this world even on a daily basis, the number of things that are true testimony to the goodness that Jesus brought to planet earth. But isn't it fair to say that that's a general concept? that he has encouraged men to do good one to another, and he's encouraged them to be peaceful and loving one toward another. That's a general idea. We might go so far as to say that all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that ever sailed, and all the kings that ever reigned, and all the parliaments that ever sat, have not affected life on earth as much as the single solitary Son of God. That's a true statement. However, what about personally? What has the Lord done for me, and what has he done for you? I submit to you that over the next few moments, just in recalling and thinking about that fact, we will be challenged, challenged to the point where we will be called upon to fall prostrate before the greatness of God and appreciate all how much he has rendered to you and me. As we take that journey over the next few moments, what did Christ do for me? And what did he do for you? We will begin then in answering that question with the following idea. The following understanding of the most terrible disease that's ever afflicted the human family. By that mean, of course, none other than sin. It is not in any sense to lighten the diseases that you and I may be afflicted with or those that you and I are called upon to face. 
diabetes, heart disease, cancer. Of course, we do not like the thought of them, for they ravage this whole physical body. But let me quickly appreciate and assert the fact none of them, none of them, hold a candle to the terribleness of sin. And the reason's simple. Sin is eternal in its consequences. Sin can separate a person from God, and sin will cause one to be lost. These other things, these other concepts and ideas, as sin is discussed in the Bible, let us note the following ideas concerning it. We go back to the very opening chapters in the whole Word of God. For there is where sin rears its ugly head. God had fashioned Adam and Eve, placed them upon this beautiful, pristine earth that He had made. In terms of those trees that resided in the garden, He had given but one commandment, one and only one. In Genesis 2, beginning in verse 16, God said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God's words were very straightforward, weren't they? No way to misunderstand what he said. In fact, as Adam and Eve made note of that commandment, as we turn to the next chapter, the very opening verse in Genesis 3, we now appreciate the fact of what will be the case concerning their knowledge of that commandment. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Genesis 3 verse 1. We notice that that serpent began to carry on conversation with Mother Eve. For to her he said, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden? Genesis 3 verse 1. In the ensuing comments that Eve made, notice she said, We may freely eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree in the midst of the garden, we may not eat, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. And thus she knew very well what God had said. She understood the firmness and directness of it. But in the aftermath, Satan wasn't done. For in verse 4 he said, Thou shalt not surely die. He didn't change God's wording by much. He just added one little three-letter word. Not. But by adding that word, he changed completely the meaning of what God had said. And in the verses that follow, he painted a majestic picture of the fruit of that tree. Satan's attention was not the other trees of the garden. It was the one about which God had given commandment. He made it look good to the eye, pleasant to eat of it. And furthermore, to put the icing on the cake, if you will, he said, if you eat it, you'll be like God's, knowing good and evil. Mother Eve partook of that fruit, gave to Adam, and he took of it as well, and transgression of God's law had occurred. We can see, even though it may sound simple, an event took place that changed eternally the state of this planet. As we noted in the Bible study class this morning, sin in entering the world brought death. But not only that, God being true to His Word, He promised them, promised them that death would come their way. On that day, in violation of God's will, they were separated spiritually from Him. They were outcast from His love because after all, we can well remember that Isaiah, in commenting on the nature of what sin brings, made this statement and how dramatic it is. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1, he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, 
Neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and your God. And your iniquities have hid his face from you that he will not hear. As God thus spoke through Isaiah to ancient Israel, he reminded them of what sin inevitably brings. Separation from the powerful, holy, perfect God of heaven. We also remember that physical death, the sentence that also came by virtue of what occurred at the end of Genesis 3. The picture at this point is not very pretty, is it? Man had everything and he gave it all up because he chose to do what he wanted rather than what God said. And in that choice, sin entered the world, violation of God's will, which by definition is, 1 John 3 verse 4, Whosoever transgresseth, or whosoever sinneth, transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. When Adam and Eve transgressed that law, they sinned. You and I, though, shouldn't be so quick to point a finger at them and cast the blame upon them, for are we any better? Wasn't it Solomon who, centuries after the events of Genesis 1 through 3, said, in 1 Kings 8, verse 46, There is no man that sinneth not. And Paul, by inspiration, gave this commentary in Romans 3. Verse number 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. Thirteen verses later, in the capstone passage on that subject, he said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, Adam and Eve sinned and thus violated God's will, but you and I, when we sin, we do the same. We thus are in the same circumstance as they. Namely, we are separated from the God who loves us and the one who eternally has shown toward us benefits that we have neglected and benefits to which we've turned our back. It is a rather interesting thought, isn't it, to think of what God has done for us and yet by our sin how poorly we've treated Him in response. At this point we might wonder, because sin inevitably brings death, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. Sin does bring death, and thus where does that leave you and me? It leaves us hopeless. It leaves us under a sentence of death, and it leaves us unless something can be done, destined for a devil's hell. We understand there are only two eternal destinies, heaven on the one hand, hell on the other. And if sin separates us from God and thus God's in heaven, that means the only other alternative is the devil's hell. does sound hopeless, doesn't it? It does sound as though it is a situation that's beyond anything you and I can do about it. And in fact, that is the case. For notice with me, what we do learn of our own volition and of our own merit, what can I do, what can you do? What may we do to eliminate sin? If that's the problem, if that's the disease, how is it eliminated? We notice that blood is essential. It's absolutely necessary that blood be available. We note that very interestingly and very powerfully in the following passages. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, we read, For without shedding of blood is no remission. The context is that of sin. Being right with God. Being available to Him. And we see then that blood must be necessary. That's a part of the desire, plan, and will of God. There's only a limited number of kinds of blood. There's the blood of an animal. 
or there's human blood, and that's it. Well, let's ask, can a blood sacrifice from an animal rid my sin? We remember that for ages in the Old Testament, God commanded animal sacrifices to be made. But the Hebrew writer made this unforgettable point. In Hebrews 10, verse 4, he said, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. We immediately have answered one of the questions. An animal sacrifice is not sufficient, and it is not adequate to take away my or your sins. Only one option left. What about human blood? Could I offer a human sacrifice? In the days of the Old Testament, God didn't look favorably upon human sacrifices. But there is a deeper problem than that. Sacrifices, as we well recall, in order to take care of sin, need to be perfect. God would not allow His people of ancient days to offer a wounded or in some way injured animal that was not good enough. Sin is too serious. And it's too eternal and it's too important. When you and I think about ourselves, we notice that we aren't perfect. All of us are guilty of sin and thus our blood too will not cleanse sin. It would do no good at all for me to offer my blood or some other person's in hope that that would cleanse my sin, for it won't. We begin to see that we have painted ourselves into a corner. God gave us a law, but we violated it. Now, because of that sin, we're subject to death and no blood that you and I have easy access to will cleanse it. It is here that God stepped in. It is here that He accomplished for us what we never could accomplish for ourselves. In fact, in the response of His love and in the character of what we see, let us notice what His grace made available. When God then dispatched His Son to this planet... He sent that Son, Jesus the Christ, to come to this earth, and in so doing, He was able and did accomplish for you and for me what we alone could never accomplish for ourselves. We needed blood to cleanse our sin, and we had none available. In God's love for us, He sent His Son. He sent the blessed and only begotten Son of God. Jesus, we remember, was born to the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem and placed in that manger. And inasmuch as He was born there, He grew up to be, of course, a person living upon this earth. But all the while, all the while He was here, we so beautifully note that the purpose of His mission was not specifically for Himself. It was for you and it was for me. We were the ones apart from God, not Him. We were the ones that were ungodly and unrighteous and evil, not Him. We were the ones that needed reconciliation, not Him. And thus He came and lived that life of sinless perfection. Do we not read in Hebrews 4 verse 15, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He had no sin. And as he sojourned here upon this earth and made his decisions in life, never once, never once did he commit sin. He lived in perfect harmony with his heavenly Father, and as such, he himself could be a sacrifice for sin, for he was perfect. No blemish was found in him, and without spot he was. In fact, Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25, no guile was found in his mouth. Absolutely blemishless was He. And thus, in a very real way, our Savior was born to die. 
as we approach the Christmas season very soon, a great deal of emphasis will be laid upon the birth in Bethlehem and all the interesting things that occurred with respect to it. But in a very real way, the events at the manger are in the shadow of the cross. He was born to die. In John 6.38 he said, I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And in John 10, verses 17 and 18, he said, I lay down my life, and if I lay it down, I can take it again. Our Lord chose to die upon that cross, and he chose to follow through with the plan of God. He chose to be that sacrifice then for humanity's sin. As Jesus died by the grace of God, he died, of course, in ways that you and I can readily remember from reading in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those very things bring us now to answer the question we started the lesson with. What did Jesus do for me personally, and what did he do for you personally? Well, consider some of the following remarks. The personal reflection, the individual statements we can now make take us back to the text that Brother Terry read a moment ago. In Isaiah 53, begin reading with me in verse number 5, if you would please. Isaiah 53, verse number 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice some of the comments that perhaps are worthy of our reflection. Just taking the, the thoughts from that verse and they alone. You'll notice that one of the first things that we notice, wounded. Why was the Lord wounded? The text says specifically that preposition of purpose for our transgressions. That word wounded in the Hebrew means pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. But notice, furthermore, he was bruised. Why? The text says, for our transgressions, for our iniquities. Verse number 5. But he goes on, the chastisement of our peace was upon who? Him. And finally, verse 5, with his stripes we are healed. We are beginning to see an overwhelming thought. Isaiah prophesied over seven and a half centuries before the Lord was born. And in the case of that prophecy, he rather vividly and very graphically here stated that these things which this one would endure, he would endure for somebody else. Stripes, chastisement, pierced, bruised, all for others. And as we see in verse number 6, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. That takes us directly to the scene we've already noted. Going astray means we've separated ourselves from God by the power and character of sin, and as such, just like a wandering sheep far from home, we have wandered away from our spiritual home, our association with God. We have turned every one to his own way, just like Eve did and just like Adam, rather than following that which God said they did it their way. And thus they sinned. And thus in consequence the Lord hath laid on him, this one of whom the prophecy speaks, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This text in an indirect way reappears later in the Bible. It was on that road 
leading from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, that there was a man, a eunuch, who was studying this very text in Acts chapter 8. That man was confused. Do you remember, in fact, what it was that took place between Philip and that eunuch? Philip joined himself to the chariot and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? The man said, How can I except some man guide me? Acts 8, 26 and following. In the conversation that ensued, we know for certain who this text is talking about because verse 35 of Acts 8 tells us, Philip began at that point and preached unto him Jesus. Our Savior fulfills these passages. He is the thrust of the prophecy. He is the one to whom the ancient writer foretold. With regard to that thought, notice then Jesus, it was said there would be wounded, bruised, chastised, and beaten for me and for you. What did Jesus do for me personally? What did he do for you individually and personally? Let's notice then some of these thoughts that will conclude our lesson. It'll take us a moment or two to make our way through the application, but this is then what we've seen. We know when we then come to the New Testament, we read so beautifully about that one named Jesus, his birth, and the character of his life, but without fail, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them record that, after a little over three and a third years in public ministry, things began to turn very difficultly for him. In fact, the Jews in Jerusalem were so antagonistic toward him, so against the things that he taught, that ultimately they arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane, where there, in fact, he was praying, and they proceeded to arrest him, just like a common criminal. The gospel accounts inform us in John 18 that at the occasion of the arrest, he was bound just like any criminal would expect to be done. Here was the Son of God treated like a criminal. Why did he do that? He had all power at his disposal. He, by merely speaking, could have struck dead those who tried to bind him. He could have struck dead any of those who opposed him, and yet he didn't. Why did the Lord humble himself to the point of submitting to wicked and cruel men who acted toward him as though he were guilty, when in fact he wasn't? The answer is simple, because of my sin and because of your sin. But we have only just begun. For from that garden they led him away first to the father-in-law of the high priest, a man named Annas, and later on to Caiaphas, the high priest, and before each of them the Lord was mocked. And in fact, the judgment that was supposed to be that which was given was not fair judgment. In fact, there was nothing fair and honorable about anything that took place in it. They held the meeting in the wee hours of the morning. And when did trials meet at two in the morning? And yet our Savior supposedly was tried at such a ridiculous hour like that. As the scene unfolds, we ask, why did Jesus allow them to do that to him? The soldiers, in their attempt to mock him, they slapped him in the face and then said, Prophesy, which one of us hit you? Why did our Savior do that? It wasn't because of his sin. It was mine and it was yours. However, after slapping him in the face and then demanding of him in a funny way which one of them hit him, they then mocked him by putting a robe on his back and a scepter in his hand. And then they made a crown of thorns and pressed it down upon his head. Finally, the Sanhedrin gave the direct result that they declared him guilty. Guilty of what? Matthew 26, verse 66. 
guilty of blaspheming the name of God, but do you remember? They had to call false witnesses to even get the charge. They paid others. They, in fact, desired false witness. Why did Jesus stand for any of this? There is no court anywhere in America that would allow things like this to happen. And the Son of God knew all along what was happening. Why did He allow it? Why did He go along with it? It wasn't because of His sin. It was mine. And it was yours. After that mockery of a trial, they led Him before Pilate. The Jews didn't have the capability of capital punishment. That is to say, of putting someone to death. And thus, they had to bring Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate, after listening to his case, said, I find no fault in this man. Pilate thought he was innocent. Pilate was ready to release him, but yet, notice what else happened. Pilate said, this season of the year, this time, it's appropriate to release one. Who would you like me to release? One called Barabbas or one called Jesus? Pilate thought, sure, they would want Jesus released. He thought, surely they would prefer to see Barabbas kept in hold. After all, he was a murderer. But yet the crowd we read in Mark 15 cried out, Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Twice they said, Crucify, crucify. We now see the ultimate sentence. Here the Lord was treated worse than a common murderer. Why was he allowed to be treated that way? Isaiah 53 had said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. After Pilate had then cowardly refused to release him, he washed his hands in a basin of water and turned the Savior over to the Jews and said, Do with him what you want, but his blood won't be on me. As they took Jesus away, we remember that Pilate scourged him, commanded him to be scourged in John 19.1. The scourging was a brutal form of beating. It was a scene in which a person was strapped over a pole and then stretched by tying his hands to something in front of him. And then a person using a type of whip with various strands, usually of leather with some kind of hard objects tied in the end of it, sometimes glass, sometimes pieces of metal, they would just beat mercilessly the person being, being scourged. There was no limit on the number of stripes. Remember, these were not under Jewish law, it was Roman. They could have beaten our Savior until he died, and quite often a scourging resulted in death. Can you imagine the blood pouring open from his back as they scourged him time after time? Why did Jesus go through that? Why did the Son of God allow Himself to be utterly damaged and beaten and virtually brought to the point of death by these Roman soldiers who perhaps found it even funny? After all, they seemed to enjoy the cruelty associated with crucifixion and everything that went with it. After He managed to live through the scourging, they placed a cross on Him and led Him away to a place called Golgotha, place of the skull, and there... They stretched out the arms of our Savior and His feet as well, and they drove nails in those hands. Nails in His feet. And thus, they then lifted that pole, dropped it into the hole, and can you imagine how hurtful it must have felt when they dropped that pole into the hole and all those nerves that were pierced in His hands and in His feet. Why did Jesus do it? It wasn't for His sins. 
It was for yours and for mine. What did the Savior do for me personally on that cross was my sin. In a very real way, I should have been the one hanging there, and so should you. We're the ones that violate God's will. We're the ones that deserve crucifixion. But God in His love sent His Son, and Jesus was crucified for me. He was crucified for you. In John 19, verse 30, in the final scenes of his earthly life, Jesus cried out, It is finished! God's plan of salvation had been executed. In John 19, verse 34, just four verses later, four verses later, at this point our Savior is already dead. The Roman soldiers had come to break his legs if he wasn't, but they found he was already dead, and yet that Roman soldier thrust that Roman spear through his gentle side, and forthwith came blood and water. Jesus shed his blood for you, and he shed his blood for me. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. When Jesus shed his precious blood, that is the very detergent, the cleansing agent that can wash my sins and yours away, and thus we've answered the question, what did he do for me? He took my sins to the cross, and he paid the sacrifice for them, and he did the same for you. In fact, the scene is so ugly and so dark that when we think about the sin that every person of every age, of every country, of all time, Jesus brought all those sins together at one moment in history at the cross. No wonder God looked away from him in a sense, for Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every sin of all time was resting on our Savior at that moment. And Jesus paid the price for all of them. You and I can be right with God, justified, holy in His sight because of what happened back there. And that's not just a generic way of goodness. That's what He did for me personally and what He did for you individually. Again, as we notice in Isaiah 53, verse number 6, what did He do for me? The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God laid on Him my sin. He laid on him your sin. And by virtue then of that sacrifice and that offering that Jesus made, you and I can stand right in his sight. No wonder Paul to the Corinthians could say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ knew no sin, but God made him to act as though he had been sin and punished that so that you and I wouldn't have to go through it. That's what Jesus did for me, and that's what he did for you. As we eternally then are indebted to him, and we should be always thankful for that which he's done for us, it may well be then today that there's one or more in this audience who has never responded out of wonderful and gracious love to him for what he did for you. Notice that by way of his crucifixion and the sacrifice he made for you and for me, he thus gave a responsibility to us that there are those terms associated with our obedience to him. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And thus, in our eternal love for him, we should be happy and always excited to do that which God has commanded through him. As we then go through the pages of the New Testament, we notice the redemption that we enjoy is remission by virtue of Christ's blood, 1 Peter 1.18. 
It may be then in light of these comments, we could reflect and summarize our lesson today. That summary might well take this form. It's certainly easy to see that the problem that with which humanity deals is sin, plain and simple. For after all, if something isn't done about it and its consequences are not taken care of on earth, we then will leave this life and at that point there's no longer any hope of coming back to God. But while we're alive upon this earth, we have the blessed commandments of the New Testament that not only reveal what Jesus did, but reveal how we apply that to our life. Notice some of the statements in summary today of how we make that application. Christ's blood has personal benefit. It does to you and it does to me. Jesus then says in order for us to come in contact with that blood and to have our sins washed away, we need to understand that which was commanded in those New Testament pages. Jesus said, except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. So belief is an essential ingredient in order to have those sins remitted. But notice he said in Roman, rather in Luke 13, 5, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And expressly to those who were covered in sin in Acts 2, Peter said, Repent. And thus we understand then the need for our repentance, the turning aside from the sin in our life. But then we notice that there's a powerful confession that Jesus is the Son of God and we do that with our whole heart. And at that point we are prepared to have that sin taken away. We might note belief doesn't remove it. Repentance nor confession removes that sin. We know that because in Acts 22.16 there was a man who had done all of that, but he, he was still in sin. Finally, a kind brother said, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We realize then in the beautiful act of baptism, we contact the blood of Jesus, and that blood washes our sin away. Hallelujah! We understand that sin that had been laid upon the Savior, He paid the price for it, and in that act, His blood will wash our sins away. Today, have you been baptized? Have you been immersed for the remission of sins? We're going to sing a hymn of encouragement in just a moment. If we could be of assistance to you in accomplishing that, it'd be our joy, our privilege, and our honor. If you have become a Christian at some point in the former days of your life, but you haven't been faithful and true, you've forgotten that the Lord laid on him your sin. You haven't thus done that which Christ asked and demanded you to do. Come back in love to him. With open arms, he not only will welcome you back, he will in fact reinstate you and encourage you to greater faithfulness. If we might be of any assistance to anyone today in your public response to the gospel, may we certainly remember the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And may we respond in kind and loving favor to that which Christ has done for us. If you need to respond today, don't let Satan keep you where you're standing. Come forward and let us pray on your behalf if that's the need for rededication. But come and let us be a part of your confession and baptism too if that's the need in your life. If we could be of encouragement or help, then let us know that and do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.